Hi everyone, welcome to today's pulmonary and critical care grand rounds. We're going to start by giving a little introduction to Zoom while other people log in. So if you're logged in, there are some icons in the bottom. One is for the audio and please keep yourself muted for the duration of the presentation. The video option is optional. Um, there is a chat box in the bottom, so if you have any questions throughout the presentation, please type them into the chat box, and I will let John and Key know that there's been a question. Um, during her presentation, she will not be able to see the chat box, but I will relay the message to her. We are currently recording the presentation, and it will be posted onto the C Maryland CC Project website. Um, if you like to have any sort of reaction, there's also a icon at the bottom for that to give John Key a thumbs up or to clap. Um, if you would like to have any other questions, we'll go over it at the end. Um, in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you, Van, for the introduction to Zoom, and hopefully this e-conference will go well. So I'm going to talk about um, tobacco and as you can see we've kind of gone from doctors who were smoking camels to now listing everything bad about tobacco uh so it's it it has gone crazy let me see if I can minimize this yeah okay so having said that oh oh nothing is moving ben are you able to okay i was able to do it okay so this is what i'm going to cover i'm going to cover the history neurobiology of addiction i'm going to spend quite some time on that talk to you about why cigarette is a marvel in engineering in addition to zoom um and then we're going to talk about some myths regarding tobacco treatment a novel approach to tobacco treatment a little bit more about the pharmacotherapy then i'm going to talk about my tobacco health assessment and treatment clinic data and some take-home points Okay, let's get started. So tobacco was introduced into this world uh, as we know it now by actually the American Indians who really, as you can see, thought that it is the, it is like slight bed. It's good for everything. So they are the ones who started it. So I wish Catherine was here because she could see this pro-con debate. So the pro was all yes for tobacco and the con was actually from James one who said that this is a stinky, it's loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, and why are we using it? So remember at that time, it was more like snuff. It wasn't really smoking cigarettes as we know now. The first reports of cancer actually was in 1761 because of the use of snuff. And as you can see, the verbiage at that time, again, I wish Dr. Britt was here. He loves all this verbiage and uh, he would understand this kind of writing and this is talking about oral cancers. Morgagni was the first one who talked about lung cancer and that was way back in the 1700s. So in spite of all this talk about cancers, it was kind of lost in space. We had camels which were given as sea rations to our soldiers to fight the war. Then, not to be outdone by the Reynolds, uh, by J.R. Reynolds, Marlboro came up with the mild as me, 
and that woman does look mild, unlike me. Uh, there is Lucky Strike, and again, promoting more for the women. Then they came up with Paul Mall, and Paul Mall then took up the entire cigarette production. Then Chesterfield was again uh, targeted towards our uh, veterans and soldiers. And then Kent, this is a shout out for Stella because Kent used asbestos and decreased tar. And they said, that's good for your health. Asbestos, good for your health. We know better. Uh, then came Winston and Salem, which both contained menthol and made it smooth. Of course, in 1964 was our first Surgeon General report on the ill effects of smoking and tobacco. And as opposed to 2019, where we had the e-cigarette, rather end of to February 2019, where they came up with the e-cigarette Surgeon General warning. We've gone all electronic now. So let's delve back into addiction, right? What is addiction? It's a highly controlled or compulsive use it has psychoactive effects and it induces drug in reinforced behavior. So is nicotine an addiction? Well, it is a chronically relapsing disorder. It has cycles of compulsive cigarette smoking and it's followed by periods of abstinence which result in withdrawal and then you go back to smoking again. So I think it does meet criteria for addiction and as a chronic disorder. So why do people smoke? Look at this guy. He's got oxygen. He smokes. And then there were some pictures of him getting burnt and his house get blown, blown up after this. The problem is they can't help it. It's all because of the nicotine. So, and the magic happens right in the brain. So that's what we need to focus on the neurobiology. So delving right into it. So what is the mesocortical limbic system? The mesocortical limbic system is a system which basically connects the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal cortex. Most of its, uh, most of the uh, receptors and the pathways are dopaminergic, and there are also glutamatergic pathways. The GABA pathways here are the inhibitory pathways. Okay, moving on to the. Next slide. Um, so nicotine is addictive because it has, it acts on the acetylcholine receptors and that's distributed all throughout the brain. And I'm gonna show you a picture of that. It releases dopamine in this gratification centers of the brain. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second. And then it also induces changes in brain function and actually the structure of the brain. And last but not the least, the addictive properties of nicotine are really related to the rate of delivery of nicotine to the brain. So that's exceedingly important and please pay attention to that because we can then talk about why is it the way it is. So this is, this is a picture which shows you the prefrontal cortex, the nucleus accumbens, which is basically the area of safety and it's also the area of the brain which tells you it it's like learned behavior and motivational behaviors it takes all the environmental cues and it tells you what is a good cue versus what is a bad cue that means you're thirsty you drink water you feel good that's a good cue 
uh, you see cheesecake, you eat it, even though, you know, it's going to put on weight and you eat it, but still it's in some people, it's still considered a good cue. And that's why we have obesity. Um, and then there is nicotinic receptors in the amygdala. There is nicotinic receptors in the hypothalamus, hippocampus, ventral tegmental area, everywhere in the brain. So, and they release acetylcholine. So that is the basic, that is the basic premise of what's happening. So let's talk a little bit more on what's happening. So it releases when you are exposed to nicotine. It increases the receptor activation. And what do you mean it increases receptor activation? Within about 10 days of picking up your first cigarette, your number of nicotine receptors in the brain increased by about tenfold. So that's a great increase. And it desensitizes these receptors. So not only it upregulates the receptors, but also desensitizes them. So they need more nicotine than to activate it. They have increased dopamine neuron activity and increased dopaminergic pathways. And that gives you gratification. And that leads to this vicious cycle where you're needing more and more and more of nicotine to achieve the same amount of pleasure, if you will. The long-term changes include neuronal arborization, uh, increased density of the nicotinic receptors, as I talked about, and the number, uh, increased sensitivity of the receptor ion channels. And this is very unique to nicotine. This does not happen to other drugs. The brain gets sensitized to nicotine. That means if it sees nicotine again, you will immediately pick it up for addiction, which explains why a lot of our patients have parents of smokers or their peers were smoking and then they started smoking. You don't live alone in isolation like we are in now and then suddenly start smoking. Usually that doesn't happen. And of course, in terms of gene expression, there is a lot of protein synthesis and different um, acetylcholine receptor gene expression, uh, which controls uh, different rates of metabolism of nicotine. Now, okay, before I move on, I wanted to say one more thing. There is a small nanoparticle called Delta Force B. This gets activated in the brain when the young brain sees nicotine. That means if you are an eight-year-old and you're living in a house where your parents are smoking and you're exposed to nicotine enough, Delta Force B gets activated in the brain. It sends dopaminergic pathways between the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. And these pathways are now ready and these receptors are now primed. And now when you're 16 and you're hanging out with your high school friends and people are smoking, you pick it up just right immediately. And Julia will tell you that, Julia who's my nurse in the tobacco clinic will tell you that this is very common in a lot of our patients. It also depends on the rate of delivery, right? So nicotine in a cigarette, and I have an e-cigarette slide to follow this. Nicotine in cigarettes or in e-cigarettes gets absorbed in the brain nearly instantaneously. So the way it is set up is it does not get absorbed in the oral and buccal mucosa. 
it goes directly into the alveolar capillary interface and it needs to be basic. If it's acidic, it doesn't get well absorbed. So that is why they add all kinds of bases. They add ammonia to help with nicotine being more of the ionized form. So it's absorbed rapidly through the brain. And you can see here within a couple of minutes, it's hit up in the brain in both arterial and in the venous system. And it comes down pretty rapidly. And this is why they have the craving to smoke that one cigarette usually is not enough. So, and then this is compared to nicotine inhalers, both in the venous and the arterial format. And you can see that the inhalers do go up, but they stay for longer. Look at the, look at the gums and look at the patches. They stay for longer periods of time. And that is why they are beautiful because even though they're the same nicotine, one, they don't create that same spike, and two, they stay for longer, so our patients don't have that craving that they usually get with smoking cigarettes. Well, if you thought that the e-cigarettes are any different, I saw that Rob was on this uh, Zoom list, so Rob, this is especially for you uh, because you were um, debating whether the e-cigarettes are safe. Well, the e-cigarettes kind of do the same thing as the cigarettes and that is why they create the kind of craving and as you can see they rapidly disperse so they are going to create the same amount or more craving because their peaks are not high and because of this people are going to puff more and they're going to draw in more nicotine nicotine is metabolized mainly in the liver it's a CYP2A mechanism for nicotine metabolization I know that in our transplant world, we do a lot of uh, checking of metabolites of nicotine or even urine nicotine um, uh, levels, but that is kind of wrong because nicotine, cotinin, they're all metabolites of nicotine. That means if you're using a nicotine replacement therapy, you will still see high levels. So these are not good chemicals for us to see if patients are on nicotine replacement therapy. Now, having said that, there, is, um, there are some slow metabolizers of nicotine, and if they are slow metabolizers, then they, it prolongs the nicotine levels in the body. It also prolongs the side effects. And as you can see, a lot of non-smokers do have these uh, mutations. This is a more robust slide which tells you about how nicotine goes to cotinin and then hydroxycotinin and measuring hydroxycotinin by cotinin ratio is actually a better way of seeing whether someone is smoking or not because hydroxycotinin does not get affected by the nicotine replacement therapy and they also have anabasine and antibacine which are other metabolites that you can look for. So here is something the tobacco industry tells you, oh, nicotine is as addicting as chocolate, love, coffee, tea, internet shopping. That's all you can do right now, internet shopping. Nothing else is available. But in actuality, it's much more addicting than heroin, cocaine, morphine, any of the drugs which are out there. 
And I usually tell my patients, if you had to give a numeric value to it, nicotine addiction is about 500 and heroin is about 150. Everything else is lower than that. And your coffee, tea, love, soda, everything is only, unfortunately, only 50 for those who are really in love with their spouses still. So talking about the effect of nicotine on the brain, it hijacks your survival instincts. So what does that mean? It means the ventral tegmental area is that part of the brain which is really responsible for looking at outside cues and environment and giving your brain a feeling of safety. It tells you these are positive things, these are negative things. That means if someone today is coughing, they have fevers, and they have a runny nose, it tells you, please go six feet and further away from them. They may have COVID-19. So it tells you, it, it protects you from doing bad things. What, but the ventral tegmental area also has nicotinic receptors. So nicotine acts as an external ligand, binds to these receptors, and really makes us, us meaning the smoking population, feel that they are safe as long as they use nicotine. When they try to withdraw from nicotine, it creates a kind of terrible feeling uh, and creates an extreme compulsion, which I'm gonna talk about in the next slide. So what is the compulsion that nicotine creates in the brain? Again, this is based on the bursts of dopamine release in the brain. Normally, in the acetylcholine receptors in the brain, dopamine is released in a tonic, slow fashion. The minute the receptors see nicotine as the external ligand, that, that, by that I mean nicotine which is smoked either in a cigarette or in an electronic um, nicotine device system, it causes bursts of dopamine release in the brain. And because of this burst of dopamine release, there is an immediate influx of a lot of dopamine, a lot of pleasure. The minute this is not there, there is a feeling or a creation of something called as a negative prediction error in the brain. And because of this, because of the combination of these dopamine bursts and the feeling of absolute doom that they get when there is not that dopamine burst, people are really they don't have any other choice and they have this compulsion and they pick up a cigarette. So they did experiments in monkeys to prove this and they had the monkeys press elect, uh, levers which would give them electric shocks and which would give them a nicotine, uh, which would deliver nicotine to them. And they found that the monkeys pressed the levers till they got electrocuted, but they couldn't stop pressing the lever, and that is the kind of compulsion that nicotine causes in the brain. The reason I'm talking about this is this compulsion is the reason why when you ask patients, oh, are you ready to quit? Or we tell, oh, this person's so not ready to quit. That doesn't work because here is a, here is a substance which works on the survival instincts of the brain, which works on creating this compulsion, and it is very difficult for the patient to say, I am going to be okay with not feeling safe. 
and hence we shouldn't be asking them when is your quit date of course it uh, i'm just highlighting that just because of course it has a connection to emotion and that happens through the prefrontal cortex which is very much involved in emotion and i'm sure your patients have told you in the past that when i'm stressed dark or when things are really not going right i pick up the cigarette or i had stopped smoking for 20 years my mom died and i picked up the cigarette at that time so there is this emotional cues which are coming in continuously to the brain and nicotine is very good about taking that emotional cue taking the cigarette together and saying that oh you have this emotional cue it means you should pick up a cigarette it also motivates you to do more you are more active you have better memory and when you are withdrawing from nicotine people are much more slower they're less motivated and they are an emotional wreck a lot of the times so let's talk about why is it a highly engineered nicotine uh, delivery device the cigarettes well that was not coined by me that was coined by this gentleman philip dunn junior uh, i mean philip dunn junior he was the philip morris researcher he told philip morris that hey if we take away the nicotine it looks like it's highly addictive and if we take it away maybe people won't get addicted as he says in this book of his and philip morris said no way you know here we have the most optimized vehicle for nicotine delivery and let us make sure that our patients get addicted and we mint millions uh this is just a, a a table to tell you the actual content of nicotine in various cigarette various kinds of different brands of cigarettes and as you can see it is pretty high and these numbers actually don't mean anything because every patient has a different breath hold a different puff volume so it can be higher than this but what this tells you is when we balk at giving 21 milligrams of nicotine patch to someone we shouldn't because our patients are getting quite a bit of nicotine in their body so what is in a cigarette i love this cartoon it's got all kinds of stuff in there arsenic carbon monoxide menthol diacetyl um ammonia of course it has some cadmium batteries um cadmium from cadmium batteries candle wax toluene everything possible and nicotine itself being an insecticide so this is how it looks inside a cigarette so what people do is they get the tobacco leaf they dry it in a different process and then they extract all the nicotine out of these tobacco leaves they roll up the tobacco leaves in machines now it's all machine made it's not handmade a lot of people there are people who do have handmade cigarettes in outside the us but not so much in us anymore and they re-inject the nicotine back into these dried tobacco leaves as you can see the cigarette paper is outside it's a very combustible uh, paper there is a filter and guess where you hold 
the cigarette right where there are ventilation holes. So they had said that we have bigger ventilation holes, but it doesn't matter because that's where a person holds a cigarette. So it doesn't matter at all. Now, addiction and talking about addiction as a chronic disease, and I want all of us, if we can take one point away from today's presentation, it's that nicotine addiction is a chronic disease, just like COPD and asthma, and we need to treat it as such. So why is it a chronic disease? So you have these smoking cues, you have stress, it creates a craving, you start smoking, there's the nicotine spike, you get activated receptors, they're desensitized now, they develop an acute tolerance, you have reduced levels of dopamine in the brain, then you get withdrawal, and then you're back to that cycle. In addition, you also have all this pleasure, stimulation, mood modulation, hence it's a chronic disease. So our myths are, quit date, come back when you're ready, which you know is not gonna work, right? Um, another one is patients have control over their smoking habits. Why are you still smoking? Victimizing them. I mean, we are to some extent victimizing them because there's this no smoking everywhere and we don't give them good places to go, good ventilated places to go out and smoke. So they're smoking right outside shock trauma. And we also shame them because we look at them funny when they're smoking. And um, nicotine replacement therapy cannot be used while smoking. And that is what most of us used to tell the patients. And this person was me too, till I went to Philadelphia to hear something different. So what did we do? We as a community and uh, we as primary physicians decided to propagate that ENDS or electronic nicotine device systems were a better, uh, better substitute for it. And so we took away rat poison and we gave them snake venom instead. And I'm not gonna talk anything more about vaping because all of us know what it does. So these were the traditional five A's. And as you can see, this is mainly a counseling thing. It's like, why would I care to do this in, in, in the office visit for ILD, smoking-related ILD? One, you have to ask about tobacco abuse. There is no way that you cannot talk about that. But then this whole advice to quit, assess the willingness to quit, it's not going to work. Instead, we need to create a cognitive awareness, meaning make people understand the effect of nicotine. And Julia and me spend most of our time in the clinic visit talking to them about the effect of nicotine on the brain. And that is all I talk to them about. I do not talk to them about the effect of nicotine on any other parts of their body. Then you want to correct this effective prediction error and make it as baby steps. Oh my God, I forgot that I had all, all these animations. Anyway, it looks like I have to look through these animations. These are all the steps that we do. So let's talk about this disordered motivation compulsion. It is classical ambivalence. We just saw a patient the other day who has metastatic breast cancer, she is smoking. She probably has COPD. She told us she is interested in listening to us. So she heard us the whole time. 
but there was this wall in front of her and absolutely she did not care what we were telling her, the effects of nicotine on the brain. She came to clinic, so it showed uh, motivation to come and willingness to want to hear about quitting smoking, but she didn't do anything about it. She said, you know what? That's my only vice right now. I'm happy doing it. I don't think I want to stop doing it. So that doesn't work very well, right? And then we also had another patient who had metastatic lung cancer on oxygen, and we gave her all the therapies available, and she still, she listened, she took all the treatment, and she said she was going to do it, but she went right out and smoked. So they are in this constant, I desperately want to quit smoking, but not right now. So I compare them to a two-headed llama. They really, really don't know what they want to do. On one hand, the angel is saying, the rational part of the brain says, I need to stop smoking now. On the other hand, the nicotine addicted part of the brain says, hell, if you stop smoking, you're going to feel miserable. You're going to feel stressed out. Things are going to be really bad. You're going to start panicking. So not right now. Let's do it in a different date. And we have this, this, uh, the same words given by our patients every single time and you have to redirect them. You really, really have to redirect them and stop them from sabotaging themselves. So I also talk about the Odysseus effect where Odysseus knew that if he went into the ocean, there were sirens in the ocean and he was going to get killed. But he thought that if he got you know, tied to the mass, the sirens won't come and kill him. Well, we know better. So we need to figure out how not to make our patient Odysseus, meaning how not to allow them to go into danger, which they are continuously going into and make them realize that that's what they're doing. So instead of disincentivizing them, motivate them more, and that helps much more. An example of this is if your patient tells you that, you know, that they are smoking and they take a smoke break and they, you know, they are working in the hospital, they take a smoke break and then they go and smoke two cigarettes instead of one. Don't kind of tell them, why do you smoke two? Tell them, maybe you could try smoking one cigarette or did you think about doing something else with your hands at that time? Maybe being part of a group at that time, talking about other things keeping your hands active. So give them other scenarios that they can do with their hands, with their time, so that they get distracted. And I did allude to this before, the real dose of smoke really is not packs of cigarette a day. It really depends on the number of puffs, the frequency of the puff, the volume of the puff, how deep of a puff you're taking in and the duration of hold. So we really do not know how much of, cig of nicotine is really going in per cigarette in a patient. So it can vary anything from, there is very vast data on this, anything from six milligram to up to 21 milligram in some reports and the conservative reports say six milligram to 14 milligram per cigarette. It can be as high as that per cigarette. So again, it tells you why 
21 milligram dose of nicotine patch is not going to kill them. I really found this tobacco toolkit very helpful. Unfortunately, Chess doesn't have it anymore, but they really put together the how do you define the severity of disease, like asthma, like COPD, like the gold criteria for COPD. It's very similar to that. So it tells you if you're a non-daily social smoker who's really healthy medically and psychiatrically, there is no role of anything in them. It doesn't matter how many cigarettes they're smoking. Whereas if you have one or more chronic medical condition and you and or you have one or more psychiatric disease, you are by definition very severe tobacco dependence. And that is what we really see in clinic. So it does not matter what the Fagerstom's nicotine uh, dependence course tells us, it matters more on what kind of medical conditions they have. If they have a medical condition which is related to smoking, and or they have a psychiatric condition, you have COPD and you have, uh, you have COPD and hypertension are automatically very severe dependence. So that is what we are dealing with most of the time, the patients that we are seeing in clinic. And then there is a stepwise approach and we are gonna talk about this. Naturally, you do not want to give triple therapy to patients who are in step one or mild addiction. Right, and how do you define mild addiction? You're smoking few cigarettes, you're healthy mentally, healthy psychiatrically, that's a mild addiction. Even a moderate addiction is similar, it just depends on the number of cigarettes that you smoke. So in mild and moderate addiction, you can use, you can use either the reliever medications or you can use controller medications like nicotine patch, bupropion extended release or varnicle. So, but as your addiction starts becoming severe and very severe, you really have to go into combination therapy. There is no role of only individual reliever or controller medicines at that point. So let's talk about nicotine replacement therapy. So why isn't there a nicotine pill? There are pills for everything. Why isn't there a nicotine pill? The reason why is nicotine is exclusively, the minute you ingest nicotine, it goes through the liver. There is very poor bioavailability of nicotine. And for you to have the, to take away the craving that people get with cigarettes, you need to have such high doses that will cause GI irritation. We know about patches. There are seven milligram, 14 milligram, and 21 milligram patch. I would say I never do anything other than 21 milligram. I do not go step down therapy at all. Most of my patients are able to tolerate it. Some of them are not. So if they are not, then you give them the lower dose patches, but don't go week one, 21, week two, 14, week three, seven. It doesn't really work very well. Gum is not meant to be chewed. Again, nicotine gum, is not meant to be chewed. It's meant to be put in the mouth, you soften it in the first bite, and then put it between your teeth and gums and let it rest there. And after some time, take it to the other side. It tastes horrible. It is yucky. It makes some patients gag. They absolutely hate it. Um, lozenge is, again, it's not meant to be swirled around all the time in your mouth. It's meant to be, again, kept between your teeth 
and your, I mean, your gum and your cheek. And again, it doesn't taste very good, but some, some of the newer lozenges are tasting better. There is a nasal spray of nicotine, which is very much like our uh, Flonase and other nasal inhalers. And we have an oral inhaler or a inhalator, which is like a cartridge, which gets attached to nicotine. And that's about a 10 milligram. So this is a Cochrane review of all nicotine replacement therapies. And they looked at all randomized control trials, which were comparing nicotine replacement therapy either alone or in combination to placebos. And they had to have at least six month follow-up. So that was the basis of this. And they had about 133 trials. And you can see here that most of the trials were on gum and patches. And then there were a few trials on combination therapies. But the rates of the relative rates of abstinence were not too bad. They weren't great, but they were not too bad. And if you look at this one paper where they use both patch, gum, and lozenge, it was a very good abstinence rate. Now, they also found that in terms of the adverse effects of nicotine replacement therapy, the main ones for gum are hiccups. They have GI disturbances, nausea, jaw pain, orthodental problems, naturally because it's a gum. The patches mainly cause local irritation. The nasal and oral sprays are again local. That means they can get rhinorrhea, throat burning, uh, hiccups. Lozenges can also cause hiccups and they can cause burning and smarting sensation in the mouth and sore throat. Chest pains and palpitations occurred at a rate of 2.5% while compared to 1.4% in the placebo group. So you can see that it's slightly higher, but none of these really led to any significant adverse events. So yes, they may get chest pain. Yes, they may get palpitation, but it did not really lead to myocardial infarction or any other worse cardiovascular outcomes. The six trials which assess nicotine replacement use in pregnant women did not really detect any serious adverse events. So this is an option for your pregnant women. The things to remember are the baseline nicotine levels produced by smoking are much higher than the patch. And we talked about the arterial levels of nicotine being higher in smokers than in patches of gum and the rate of delivery of nicotine when it's inhaled is much faster and that is why the cardiovascular effects are greater with cigarettes and electronic cigarettes patients who use nicotine replacement therapy who continue to smoke they just reproduce their baseline nicotine levels not higher now going to bupropion sustained release what is that it's a dopamine and norepinephric reuptake inhibitor it acts as a nicotine receptor antagonist. That's what we are hypothesizing. We really do not know the exact mechanism on how bupropion works. What they noted in the 1980s was when the depressed patients, the patients with depression were taking bupropion, they were more likely to quit. And that is how bupropion came to be used for nicotine replacement. So again, it's been compared to placebo and it's pretty robust and it's got a great quality of evidence. It's been compared to nicotine replacement with nicotine replacement therapy. 
versus nicotine replacement alone, and that is low grade of evidence because there were only 12 studies. And it's been compared just versus nicotine replacement therapy, and it still does better than nicotine replacement therapy. The seizure rate is one in thousand. Again, it's one in thousand for those of us who are worried about giving it to them. Von McLean is a partial agonist of nicotine acetylcholine receptors. It has the strongest affinity for the alpha-4 beta-2 receptors. It causes sustained release of dopamine levels, which, which provides a relief from the craving and the withdrawal symptoms. And it helps with the cessation uh, attempts because of this. So it causes dopamine release. So the brain thinks it's getting the cigarette smoke and all is good with the world. However, Warnicklin takes about four weeks to have peak action. So these are some of the um, reviews on the randomized control trials with Warnicklin. So Warnicklin was compared to placebo. It was compared to propropion. It was compared to nicotine replacement therapy. It really, really does better than all of them. Now, coming to the Eagles trial, talking about the black box warning of Warnicklin that it is not to be used because it causes a suicide risk. Now, Pfizer was having a horrible time, so they decided to do the Eagles trial. And the Eagles trial is pretty cool because it is bupropion, nicotine patch, Warnicklin, and placebo. That's kind of four arms. And you can see that the continuous abstinence where it is not only compared to placebo, but even other interventions, Warnicklin performs much better. You can also see that in terms of the neuropsychiatric endpoints, Warnicklin, bupropion, nicotine patch, they're all nearly the same, nearly close to placebo. It isn't too bad. And the severe adverse events are not too bad either. So on the whole, if you look at the serious adverse events, it's insomnia, nausea. Nausea is the main reason that people can't take Shantix because it causes severe, severe nausea. And it's supposed to be in only 30% of the people, but the nausea is so bad that they can't take it. So you have to tell them, please take it with food and a full glass of water. And here is a subdata which talks about the use of these therapies in patients with psychiatric disorders versus those without psychiatric disorder, and they still did good. So coming to what I do, uh, the tobacco health assessment and treatment practice, which is funded through the state grant, we decided to create tobacco health and make it more integrated into mainstream primary clinic visit. And the idea was to take away the stigma of nicotine use. We use the word liberation and not cessation. We have a one-is-to-one -one patient uh, provider interaction. And we have continuity by outreach, which is currently being done by Julia. And a big shout out to Julia because she, does, she has done about 500 plus phone calls for the 60 patients that we have seen in the tobacco health and treatment clinic till now. And she spends a lot of time talking to them and they absolutely love her and she is their tobacco coach. So if you want your patients to have a tobacco coach, uh, please do reach out to us and to Julia. 
Uh, we look at drug-drug interactions and we are trying to see what we can do to mitigate their adverse reactions and creating a model for overall tobacco health beyond the lungs. So what do we do? We do the entire history, mainly geared towards tobacco. We do an entire physical exam. We calculate a Framingham 10-year cardiovascular risk on all our patients. Uh, we look at their comorbidities. We, uh, we uh, assign them to different dependence categories depend on their depending on their comorbidities, whether they are mental illnesses or, or uh, chronic health conditions and we give them therapies which don't interact with the other medications. So that's what we do. We also have uh, grant funding to give nicotine replacement therapy. So we do give nicotine replacement therapy free of cost to a lot of our patients. So these are our clinic visits so far. So we've seen 60 patients. Most of them have come only for one visit, a couple of them for two visits and some for three visits. In terms of age, most of our patients are falling between the 55 to 64-year age group, a few in the 65 plus. And our oldest patient is 81 years old. Uh, and our youngest patient is 24 years old. Uh, most of them are women. Uh, you can see the race distribution here naturally, not only because of the uh, area that we are located in, but our population does serve the underserved. So we have a lot of African-American population. Most of them have uh, outside insurance, which is not Medicare and Medicaid, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, United, many of the other private insurances. This is something called the Area Deprivation Index. That means it looks at zip codes, five-digit zip codes, and it takes four more digits, so it's actually a nine-digit zip code, and it looks at that population, what is the education there, looks at the census data and tells you how, how much of access to care they are or what, how much of a vulnerable population they are. The higher the number, the more vulnerable the population is. And the people who are coming to our clinic are definitely falling in that vulnerable population because 10 is the worst. In terms of the Fagerstrom nicotine uh, severity of dependence, we, most of the patients we see have high dependence. Some of them are moderately high or moderate, and a few are low. This is what they have tried in the past for um, tobacco liberation. They've tried multiple things. MDQL means Maryland Quitline. A few of our patients who have tried Maryland Quitline really do not like it too much. They, here are their main withdrawal symptoms. As you can see, craving, they talk about it, but irritability, anger, anxiety, depression, weight gain. So these are all, weight gain is one of the biggest side effects or withdrawal effects in these patients as you're replacing one addiction with another addiction. Here are our list of comorbidities that we have. We have quite a few with COPD, but hypertension is our most common comorbidity. Um, we have a few with cancer now, a pretty decent number with cancer now. And uh, as you can see, we have 
a decent amount of patients who also have known psychiatric illnesses. Here is our distribution of Framingham risk scores. And here is the actual percentage of the Framingham risk score. And as you can see, higher percentages are high risk, whereas lower percentages are low risk. And there are a lot of our, there is a small number of our patients who are in the extreme high risk, um, extreme high risk, and there are a decent number of them in the moderate risk. This is what we have in uh, the data as of 12-13, I don't have the more updated data. Uh, as of 12-13, we, we had seen 30 patients. We have seen 30 more patients since December 13th. Um, most of our patients were on patches. Um, we gave patches and lozenges to a lot of our patients. We gave inhalers to some of them, Shantix to 11 of those 30 patients and Propropion to some of them. And the number here is the number of patients who use those uh, therapies. Um, and this is a combination therapy that we use. Mainly it was patch and gum. Um, as of now, this is the treatment that we have prescribed, but I don't have data on the usage. This is our liberation data as of 12-13 and uh, we had about five patients at that time who had stopped smoking. So naturally, if they're more compliant, which is the light orange versus the peach or the dark orange being non-compliant, sorry, the dark orange being compliant and the light orange being non-compliant. So if you were, no, I got myself all mixed up. I was right. This is the compliant group. This is the non-compliant group. If you were compliant with your medication, you were much more likely to quit. I'm not surprised. But you know what? Even if they were cutting down, that's a great thing. That's an awesome thing. We are looking for our patients to cut down. We don't care if they didn't completely quit. We want them to cut down. And that's a big, big win for us. So take home points, the effect of nicotine on the brain. We do know that ENDS is the new epidemic and vaping is the new epidemic. We have to stop shaming and we have to start healing them. It's not cessation because it's not a one way. It's not one way, it's treatment, it's a liberation. These therapies are mostly safe and can be used for extended periods and I can take questions on how long they can be used. And higher severity does require step up therapy. And I would like to thank all these people, definitely Julia, without whom I couldn't function. And of course, Sherry and uh, Elena, who's our biostatistician, Niharika Khanna, who's been my mentor, Dr. Hasday, for being uh, you know, with me through this whole journey and making me go for this. I started thinking about this in 2013. So thank you, Dr. Hasday and Sarah Wolf and David Queen, uh, Quinn from Department of Health. And that's all I got. Okay. Thanks, Janaki. Uh, smoking while talking all any of these therapies is safe. What does that mean, Max? I didn't understand you. I think he's asking if smoking while taking any of the therapies oh, is taking, safe. Oh, taking, sorry. 
this tells me I can't even read. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And in fact, you have to encourage them to continue to smoke because for Shantix to work, for Bupropion to work, for nicotine patches to work, we, they should be smoking because as they smoke, they slowly get turned off. So Blaine's question is, how long do you prescribe the Shantix or Bupropion? And when do you stop it? And do they need to be tapered off? So Shantix and Bupropion do not need to be tapered off. Uh, you can play a lot of games with these uh, drugs in the sense that one, the duration of treatment is usually at least for two months beyond when they stop smoking. They are, the safety data for this has been, for Shantix has been, uh, has been studied up to six months. So you can give Shantix and Bupropion for up to six months. Uh, you, of course, have to monitor them. But when they stop smoking, you need to continue this for at least another four to six weeks so that they don't, they don't relapse. A lot of times what I do is if I prescribe them Shantix or Bupropion and they have stopped and now it's four weeks after they're stopping, but I've reached that maybe they're reaching close to their three-month mark or some patients are just not feeling comfortable with taking Shantix anymore, I do switch them to nicotine patches at that time. Uh, Sophie says, if a patient is on other antipsychotics and antidepressants, would you recommend referral to psych? I usually ask um, this uh, psychiatrist to see if it's okay to give them Propropion, but Epic is good in this sense because whenever you, you have to understand that a lot of these medications are, do have interactions, both Varnaclin and Bupropion, and Epic is exceedingly good about telling you about the interactions and it will tell you when you're trying to order it, whether it's safe or not. But I also, if I'm not comfortable with all the data that I have and re-looking at their medications and entering it into micromedics and other data sets, then I do as a psychiatrist. You're welcome, Sophie. Any other questions? I think that's it. Thank you so much, John and Key. You're very welcome. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, for guys. Opinion.